Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode. It's Kelly here and I'm delighted today to be joined by my colleague Dr Caitlin Kite who is an academic developer and science communication expert and today we're going to talk about research communication and storytelling but specifically a chapter from the book TED Talks by Chris Anderson that's all about explaining tough concepts. So Caitlin are you happy to introduce yourself? I am Dr. Caitlin Kite from the academic development team, and I am someone who has been involved with communication and education for pretty much my whole life. So I have been um, in the area of science communication, perhaps most recently I've written books and magazine articles and done public speaking. So I have a general interest in communicating to non-academic audiences. So to start off with, Caitlin and I are going to give our key takeaways or our key summaries of the extract, which was the chapter on explanation and what we think are the really important things to take forward as a researcher. So I'll, give, I'll start us off. So for me, even though the chapter is called explanation, it's really about storytelling. And storytelling is one of those things that I talk about all the time in relation to every form of research communication whether it's tweeting about your research or blogging or podcasting or writing up a thesis chapter or giving a conference presentation it's all about storytelling because when we're communicating our research we are constructing it for an audience in some shape or form for me one of the things that i was thinking about i was having a bit of a flashback um, where there's quite a lot of discussion about the very clever techniques that people employed and how um, they had done something in order to leave the audience thinking a thing or wondering a thing and then how that was brought to a close or um, built upon and i was thinking about how um, when i studied English quite extensively. So my mom was an English teacher and for a long time I thought I was going to also go into literature. So I did a lot of English study and when you're doing literary analysis and interpretation, I think you become convinced that what you are seeing, the patterns that you're finding, are things that the author deliberately put in place. And there's some really deep meaning and some metaphor and oh isn't that clever and then actually you find out later on that um, the person never intended that and we do in fact have authors that are still living who said nope that is not what I meant in that place and um, and I think that <laughs> we do that with a, a lot of stuff we we find our own meanings in lots of things and so when I was listening to all the descriptions of the very clever stuff that these speakers were doing I thought how much of that is really intentional how deliberate are all of these decisions and I do think that often when you are preparing communication that there are some deliberate choices and there always should be deliberate choices but I also think that a lot of people have a sort of an intuition and I have a, a friend who works in the, the press and in and public relations. And he often talks about how everyone is good at storytelling because we do it when we're kids, we grow up telling stories and we often stop doing it as we get older. But actually we do all have this kind of latent untapped potential, even if we aren't 
using it. And so perhaps some of the time we get in our own way and actually we just need to kind of let go and let those creative juices flow. And I certainly find that I do this when I'm writing. Often I think I'm going to start off with a certain goal, here's my certain structure, and then something else entirely comes out and I actually really like that. And so all of this is to say that I think all of what you said about the structure is really important in those techniques. It's really important to be aware of those possibilities, but also to kind of set certain expectations aside when you approach your own communication and just go with the flow and see what comes out. And then your mind will pull the right ones out to the right techniques, the right methods when you need them and something new and different might emerge. And you just never know when you start. I think that's really important. And like you say it's not about kind of it's not a tick list of if you've got a metaphor <laughs> and you've got an example and you've got this you've got a great you, you've got a great explanation or great form of communication um it's about figuring out what works for a particular topic and particularly you know the thing that i liked about this chapter even though you know it's for ted talks which aren't always research-based it's talk it's talking about kind of explaining difficult concepts which I know when we talk about research communication and we talk about some of these things about storytelling, people always say to me, oh yeah, but you know, I can't oversimplify it. Um, and it, it's not about oversimplification. It's about actually that fundamental thing, which is in the chapter. And I've been um, listening as an audiobook to Will Storrs, The Science of Storytelling. And it really emphasizes what you're saying that actually storytelling is such a fundamental part of the way we've developed and evolved as human beings you know it's a very particular part or capability of our brains and we do it in all aspects of our life but we don't necessarily think that that's what we're doing well and i think that 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 links to another element that really stood out for me and I forget exactly how it was phrased in the passage that you read, but it, it reminded me of a similar sentiment that I saw at some point um, online. It's one of those things where you come across it on Twitter or something and you save it because you think, oh, that's a really good point. Um, and this person was basically saying that the whole point of of going out and, and giving a public lecture, let's say, a lot of a lot of people who do that, there is a bit of an ego trip involved and and they want to make sure that when they're standing up there in front of everyone that they sound smart and that they look smart and that they uh, do a good job so they can walk away feeling like yeah everyone admires me now and actually what's what's more important and i think teachers do this as well like it's inevitable that you do kind of it's hard to shut out your ego if for no other reason you just don't want to make a fool of yourself but what you really want to be up there doing is completely not thinking about yourself and in fact thinking in the opposite, thinking of the audience and trying to get the audience to walk away thinking, man, I am brilliant. And, and the whole thing is that you can stand up there and say super fancy words that nobody gets, or you can find a really clever way of saying something that everyone understands, but that understanding is something that like opens up the universe to people. And suddenly they see all these connections and it changes the way they perceive life and they feel amazing. And I think that when you walk out of there feeling amazing because you've had a mental connection, you are at the same time feeling extremely grateful to the person that helped you get that. And so I think that inevitably the one will kind of allow the other to follow, but it really is about helping other people to make those connections rather than trying to elevate yourself in some fashion. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think when I talk about academic writing and, you know, when I teach about literature reviews and reading and we have these kind of very honest conversations of actually reading academic work can be really tough sometimes because there was certainly this historical tradition where we articulate ourselves in the most complicated way possible, using as much jargon as possible to look as clever as possible. Um, and thankfully, we are sort of slowly shifting away from that and writing in a way that's more accessible to everybody. Because the reality is, actually, even if we are schooled in that discipline, we can read journal articles in it and still not understand or have to read a paragraph several times to really understand what it means. And it's it's just not good communication. It's We're not, like you say, that's about our ego and about making ourselves sound clever rather than actually communicating and actually promoting promoting understanding in others and you're not going to have any impact with your research unless you're doing that absolutely and i think that um i, I think that some of that ties in with uh the the broad category of rhetorical techniques so these things that you mentioned already for example the use of metaphors i think some people think that um you know they're going to cheapen something if if they do have to liken A to B rather than talking about A directly. And it's that kind of um, dumbing down that you mentioned earlier. But actually, I think that there's something really satisfying in learning a variety of rhetorical techniques and having that little bank of things in your brain and then figuring out just the right one. You know, is it that I'm going to start off this talk by asking a question? Is it that I'm going to start off by T telling people that they don't know anything and I'm going to tell them everything now and like, you know, up in their expectations and all those things that you mentioned in the passage where it was about um, kind of leaving people on a cliffhanger or confusing them deliberately so that you get everything back up. So it's all those little things. I don't think we're really taught that so much in school anymore. And, you know, we used to be taught rhetoric in the classroom and that doesn't really happen. And so those are things where you do have to undertake that kind of literary analysis that I mentioned earlier. You do have to deliberately look for those things and find them. And then you have to think, when are these going to be, be applicable? When are they going to help? And then you have to not be afraid of using them because in a, in a sense, I think some people think, well, it's a bit manipulative. It's like showmanship. It's not really genuine. It's not really you know, researchy, it's not really teaching. I'm getting up there and I'm kind of performing a little bit, but actually th that's, that is a part of communicating. That's often a part of storytelling as well. It's setting the stage. There is a bit of theatricality and I don't see anything wrong with that. It doesn't cheapen anything. And at the end of the day, if people are therefore understanding. Well, I was just gonna say that I think um, when we talk about stories, often people um, feel uncomfortable with the word story, right? It sounds like fiction. It sounds like it's not the truth. Um, but really, when we're talking about stories, we're talking about narratives. And the word narrative just indicates that this is, there's a temporal progression here. You know, there are things that are happening in a certain order. And really, if there are all sorts of things that we've been doing with narrative over time. You mentioned um, Will Storr's book, the science of storytelling. There's another one that I'd recommend called the storytelling animal, um, which which is by Jonathan um, Gottschall, and books like that talk a lot about how you know our brains perceive and store information in narrative form for obvious you know evolutionary reasons, 
we need to we need to know what prompted the lion to jump out of, of the bush at us so that we cannot do that again or whatever the situation was. So this, these are things we pay attention to, we remember them really well. And so for thousands of years, that's how we learned, we told stories. And if you think about things like fables and myths, you know, we had these stories that were specifically designed to add a whole lot of information together and tie it up in little packets so that we could keep all of our human knowledge, the sum total of everything we knew as a culture, in our brains. And that is a really important thing to do, <laughs> obviously. You need to pass that information on. And really, these are these fables and, and myths and these memorable stories. These are things that are fundamentally really important in, in all of the tasks that we do. And I think it's all about relating various lessons to our own lives and to who we are as people to what we want to achieve to how we can do that either working alone or as a community and so something suddenly that that starts off sounding like entertainment becomes kind of essentially basic and a, a baseline really foundational part of just being a person and being alive in society and i think that that's part of the thing that does help connect all of our research to our everyday lives is that actually there are lessons to be drawn out of every single thing and we can use those lessons in unexpected ways and we've been doing that for thousands of years and to me that feels really exciting like you're actually a part of the kind of human continuum if you engage in this exchange of knowledge in this way exactly and I mean I think like you say about you know there's almost a sort of a looking down on a sense of performativity and showmanship in it and and this notion of entertainment but actually you know let's look at our modern world and let's look at how we learn we learn through entertainment i mean how many people watch blue planet how many people have changed their habits and the amount of plastic they use as a result of blue planet which some of our researchers at exeter were involved in i remember seeing a really interesting article once about the Sunday night drama called The Midwife, um, where they had an episode about female genital mutilation. And it actually showed that there were more Google searches and people searching out more information about FGM as a result of it being featured on an episode of Call The Midwife than when the BBC ran a documentary specifically about it. And it was a really interesting thing that said, actually, it's the important thing here was the medium through which the message got through. And the medium was, you know, Sunday night entertainment, essentially. But all of our entertainment is embedded with those kind of messages, whether they're about history, whether they're about morality. I mean, that's how, you know, it's how we're taught the difference between good and bad as little kids. Through fairy tales and, and those myths and fables. You know, you go all the way back to Aesop's fables and all of the messages about the ways in which we act in the world that are embedded within those simple really simple stories and so i think yeah i agree it's sometimes we we look down on the notion of performing and the notion of entertainment whereas actually we forget how much we learn through that medium and we're socially conditioned for that aren't we i wanted to come back to this idea of the curse of knowledge because it's that real. I think this is where the real challenge lies: is 
okay, we've got all of these tools that we can use to promote understanding, but we are cursed with knowledge. And how do we, how do we take that step back? How do we begin thinking from our audience's perspective rather than ours to kind of break down what we're trying to say, the different concepts we're articulating and creating those, what um, Chris Anderson calls in the TED Talks book, those building blocks that get people to a central idea. And for me, in my own experience, that that really is where the challenge lies because once I, once I can take a step back from that and I know what I need to say, we have these range of tools that can be adopted to say it. But how do, how do you get past that curse of knowledge? Whenever you got to that point in the passage, my immediate reaction was, oh, well, I don't have this problem. I'm actually really good at this. And as soon as I had that thought, I thought, well, but am I? Like, what if I'm just, you know, I've just convinced myself. And that's exactly what everyone does, right? They convince themselves that they already know what they're doing. Um, but what it made me think of was an element that I recently added to a communications workshop that I run, where I was trying to get people to think about the different sorts of audiences that they talk to and how just kind of intuitively they often, I think most people do to some extent, they will often start adapting how they're describing their research as they're talking to these different audiences. So my research was uh, as a scientist, which is what I used for my example in the workshop, it was really interdisciplinary. Yeah. And so I would often find myself talking to different researchers from different disciplines as I was asking about different subjects. And for each of those researchers, I had to describe my work in a completely different way so that I could extract the knowledge that I needed from them while not confusing them with all the extra stuff that had nothing to do with their field. And, and at some point I kind of noticed that I was doing that. And then I realized that it was the same sort of thing I was doing when I would talk to uh, peers in my program who weren't necessarily doing my research, but you know they were kind of generally in the same field. And it was the same thing I was doing when I would talk to my parents or to people I might meet at a conference and so on. And once I became aware of the different choices that I was making, it suddenly became actually much easier to know how to actively make those choices on purpose in the future. So there were certain um, phrases that I might use or not use, or if I used them, I would immediately define them. There were certain uh, elements that I just wouldn't even talk about or others that I would emphasize much more. So it's really, you know, what's there, what's not there, how are you describing it, how are you balancing out what what is exactly that story that you're telling and I think it's really all about just not necessarily being empathetic but just being really mindful of what it is that people are getting confused about what it is they're asking you to clarify when are they squinting <laughs> and furrowing their brow and you know, we probably won't get it right the first time but we do this lots of times and so it's really paying attention over all of those different iterations and collecting all those little techniques so that you can use them on purpose next time around. It, it, it's kind of responding to the fact that that's not really working for that person. Obviously that's a very clear dialogue, but it's what we do in a teaching room. You know, it's what makes people good teachers is you're observing your audience or your classroom and you, you can tell from those furrowed brows, but from body language and from, you know, more ephemeral things like kind of 
energy and atmosphere how things are going down and whether or not you're bringing you know bringing the class with you holding their hand or whether you've let them go and you do change that and switch that up in the moment and find different ways to articulate things and different ways to explain things yeah and I, I agree and I think that's actually one of the things I was considering as you were reading the passage was how important it is where we can to actively get a bit of information about our audience in advance and this is not always possible absolutely if you're doing a public event and it's just you know whoever is walking by is going to come over and, and listen you don't know what they already know you have to take a, a stab in the dark or kind of go for a lowest common denominator or whatever the case is but there are often times where we do have the ability to send out a little survey or at the very beginning of a talk to ask for a show of hands or something like that. And even just a couple of those little opportunities can make a huge difference because suddenly, um, you know, there was that example in the bit you read about the, the writer who didn't know what natural selection was. So you can, it really easily, you can say, show of hands, who has heard of this? Or does everyone feel that they can, uh, you know, apply that knowledge or define it for me. And just knowing that little bit would make a huge difference because you could either assume some understanding of evolution or you would take a step back and, and go through the description a bit. And having that to orient you at the very beginning can be really helpful. And this is why when I'm giving talks um, where possible, and again, if you're doing a TED style thing, this might not work, but I like to have hidden slides uh, whether that's kind of as I go or at the very end that I can pull up if I need to, so that if there is a particular concept that's a stumbling block, either in the middle of things or after when I'm being, um, when I'm answering questions, I can pull that up and say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't cover it before, but here it is now. I think that's really important. And that really brings us back to that notion of what the building blocks are. Yes. And, and, and I, th I think we can, we can use our own experience with that as well as a source of inspiration. Um, and this perhaps kind of relates to the, the other theme of the chapter, which was thinking about simplification. But I was thinking about how uh, if, if you can be empathetic to your audience and, and place yourself in their shoes and think, what was it like when I first started learning this thing? You know, what, what were my stumbling blocks? What were the terms I didn't understand? What was the, um, the threshold concept, if you like? What was the thing that, that I learned that suddenly opened my eyes and allowed me to access everything else? That linchpin. So I think that when you can try to just reverse the clock a little bit, and see through early your eyes, um, then that can help you to then think about how to pitch it for your audience. And I think that one of the things that's really interesting about that, well, especially in science, uh, I'm not sure the extent to which this happens in other disciplines, but when we're taught about things in science, often we get something that's incredibly watered down because the truth is insanely complex. And so when we learn about um, replication, for example, you know, we, we, this, this really simple concept of, oh yes, the cell is one cell and then it becomes two cells and that keeps going until you have a whole human body. Um, and that, you know, that's it. And then suddenly you start finding out about mitosis versus meiosis. And then you find out about 
tRNA and mRNA, <laughs> your mind is blown. And you think, well, why wasn't I told all of these things before? Because each time I'm having to completely break apart my knowledge and reassemble it. <laughs> it's very confusing. Like, why didn't you just dive straight into that really complex thing? But you can't dive straight into that complex thing because it's too many parts and it will overwhelm people. So it is really important to think about how do people learn? What are the bits that they need at certain times? And then just to focus on those things. And if they want more, they can go find more or they can talk to you later. But no one is going to take all of that in. They might hear it, but they're not going to learn it. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the really important things about thinking about the difference between a presentation and, you know, a journal article or something we communicate in writing is the level of detail and complexity that we can represent is very different because people are taking them in completely differently. You know, you can read something and you can pause and you can, you know, look a word up or look a term up or a theory, or you can take a, you know, take a break and let a mull over an idea. Whereas in a presentation, you've, it, it's got, all got to come right now. <laughs> it's now or never. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for a fascinating and illuminating conversation all about storytelling and explaining tough concepts. I'm going to put links in the show notes to all the resources Caitlin and I shared in this episode, as well as where you can find Caitlin online. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe. And join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.